We live in an age of stunning technological transformation that has seemingly increased connectedness, but also helped decrease community. We can cross the entire earth in less than a day and our emails arrive instantaneously, but we have not found the fellowship that we need and we have lost the biblical teachings about what lends life meaning. On December 24th, 1968, astronauts Frank Borman, William Anders, and Jim Lovell spoke on live television from aboard Apollo 8, the first manned mission orbiting the moon. With so many millions listening to their voices, they sought words which could somehow capture the meaning of the moment. Their journey heralded the modern age, and yet the text they chose was ancient indeed. Taking turns, the three astronauts said, For all the people on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message we would like to send you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. The astronauts reading sacred scripture to an audience of millions had no idea that soon one of them, on a mission known as Apollo 13, would become famous first and foremost not for his glorious journey into outer space, but for his desperate attempt to return home. In a tale that would teach us more about the beginning of Genesis than that of any other astronaut ever would. Welcome to Bible 365, a new audio lecture series featuring a journey through the entire Hebrew Bible in one year through a daily dose of Jewish scripture. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. It is well known that the book of Genesis gives us, in its opening chapters, two different accounts of the making of man, one in chapter 1 and the other in chapter 2. Rather than a contradiction, the Bible here provides us with two aspects of our nature, both of which define who we are. And I believe that one of the astronauts of Apollo 8 embodies these complexities. Let us begin the Bible together and discover how this is so, continuing the first chapter from where the Apollo 8 astronauts left off. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the water, and let it divide water from water. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So creation day by day proceeds with purpose. What was once without form and void takes on definition and designation. What was murky mist is separated to sea and sky and what was mere matter suddenly becomes organic life, as well as the constellations of the heavens. Here is Genesis 1, verses 11 and 14. And the earth brought forth grass, yielding seed after its kind, and tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars also. And God saw that it was good. One senses, as we read, that we are building towards something that one creature will crown creation. And indeed, at the summit of the sixth day, we find verse 26. And God said, Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Mankind, made last, is apparently the ultimate end of the Almighty's actions. Humanity's coming into being is followed by the Sabbath, the seventh day, and the close of creation. Humanity, we are further informed, is great because it is made in the image of the Almighty. This seems to signify 
that mankind resembles its creator in some way. And based on what we have read thus far, we can conclude that humanity imitates the Almighty because it is bequeathed with the power to create and innovate, to take what God has made and make it our own. Thus, verse 27, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Mankind shows that it is made in the image of God when it illustrates its dominion over all that God has made in the first place. What this means, then, is that the astronauts of Apollo 8, who themselves read Genesis 1, were also embodying it. For is there any greater illustration of man being made in the image of the Almighty, of human greatness, than orbiting the moon only six decades after the Wright brothers first flew, to, as Ronald Reagan put it, slip the surly bonds of earth and touch the face of God? The human urge to boldly go where no man has gone before is part and parcel of the original charge given to man in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is the first description we have of the creation of mankind, humanity as the great imitator of the Almighty. Every scientific achievement made by man can be seen as a fulfillment of this promise. And yet, in these biblical descriptions, a hint of warning can be detected. Throughout creation, we are invariably informed of God's positive reaction to what he has made. With the heavens, the moon, the grass, we are told that God saw that it was good, but not with the creation of man. Humanity is gifted with godlikeness, and it is free. But in its freedom, it also has the capacity for extraordinary evil. And this, the Bible, will later make terrifyingly clear. But for now, the emphasis is on the positive. Man and woman are made in the Almighty's image, endowed with profound power, charged with subduing, filling, populating, and conquering existence. All this is chapter 1. We turn now to the second chapter, where an entirely different emphasis is found in the biblical description of man's emergence onto this earth. Listen to this account, Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Here, ladies and gentlemen, the original Hebrew is so, so important. And God made Adam, Adam, of the dust from the Adama, the earth. Suddenly, in the very name for mankind, Adam, we discover a new meaning. Unlike in the first chapter of Genesis, here the emphasis is not on the image of God, but on the mere dust from which man is made. I once co-taught a seminar on the Bible in Princeton, and several students were devout Christians, who had never read the Bible in the original, never understood the link between Adam and Adama, between Adam and earth. Their entire face lit up because it changes one's entire notion of the meaning of the name. It's a common insult in English to say of someone that his name is Mud. This is often, though wrongly assumed, to be linked to Dr. Samuel Mudd, who assisted in the healing of John Wilkes Booth. But whatever its origin, the phrase is not seen as high praise. But here in Genesis 2, Adam is literally named for the earth, Adama. His name may not be Mud precisely, but his name is Dirt. And that is meant to connote his finitude, his vulnerability. This brings us to the next difference. In Genesis 1, man and woman are created side by side. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 2, the man made from dust is alone and responds to his vulnerable nature by seeking a mate. This is verse 21. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmate opposite him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. 
And he took one of his sides and closed up the flesh in its place. And of the side which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made a woman and brought her to the man. Some translations describe woman as being made from Adam's rib rather than from his side, but the precise material is immaterial. The point is that here in the second chapter of Genesis, Adam is forced to give up something of himself. In the first chapter, we meet man and woman at once. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he made them. There, the focus is on human greatness. Here, vulnerable man needs a mate, a spouse, and he has to sacrifice to bring another person into reality. He needs to give up something of himself in order to bring his wife into the world. And one more difference. In Genesis 1, man and woman are commanded to conquer and subdue the world. Here, in the second chapter, we are told something very different after man's creation. This is verse 8. And he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and guard it. The garden is the home of the man, and he's supposed to stay there. We thus emerge from our brief journey through the first two chapters of the Bible with a complex picture. Genesis 1 gives us a story of mankind created in God's image that makes its greatness manifest in achievement, in conquest, in exploration. Genesis chapter 2 describes man made from dust and speaks not of exploration or conquest of creation, but of being bound to home through sacrifice for others, fellowship, and love. Which of these descriptions best captures who we are? The answer, of course, is both. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 provides us not with a choice, but with two sides of the same coin. For Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, these two accounts hint to two parts of our nature, what he famously called Adam 1 and Adam 2. The New York Times' David Brooks has given us a succinct summation. Adam 1, Brooks said, is the worldly ambitious external side of our nature. He wants to build, create companies, create innovation. Adam, too, is the humble side of our nature. Adam, too, wants not only to do good, but to be good, to live in a way internally that honors God. Adam, one, asks how things work. Adam, two, asks why we're here. Adam, one's motto is success. Adam, two's motto is love, redemption, and return. It is striking, then, that one of the first men on earth to leave the earth, a man who reflected the teaching of Genesis 1, that humanity is created in the image of God, ultimately became famous for illustrating the lesson of man's vulnerability described in Genesis 2. Several years after embodying Adam 1 in the orbit of Apollo 8, Jim Lovell launched again in Apollo 13. He had intended to land on the moon, but ultimately, after an oxygen tank ceased to function, he suddenly reflected all that Adam 2 was about. He was a vulnerable human being who needed his family, who desperately wanted to get home. The film that Tom Hanks made about Lovell is seen as a space movie, but rightly understood it as the opposite. What makes it interesting is its inversion, a tale about astronauts whose mission had been to imitate Neil Armstrong's accomplishment, but then something went wrong, or as they famously put it, Houston, we have a problem, and the mission became to get them back to Earth. As the film shows, when Apollo 13 launched and the mission was going well, their original broadcast from space was watched by no one on Earth because the public had already lost interest. Been there, done that. But getting Jim Lovell, a man who was over 200,000 miles away, back to his family, that had an emotional aspect with which all Americans identified, which drew the world's attention again. The flight path of Lovell and his crew highlighted this reversal. Instead of landing on the moon, they instead utilized the gravity of the moon as a slingshot to launch them on a path back to Earth, reflecting how their sojourn was transformed 
from lunar odyssey to earthly-oriented return. Adam 1, becoming Adam 2. In 1968, Jim Lovell in Apollo 8 quoted the Bible to all America. It is doubtful that astronauts on a broadcast today would instinctively do the same. And this goes hand-in-hand with something else that civilization has lost. Our age offers us Adam 1, but not Adam 2. Science has given us so much, but in our formation of families, in our sacrifice for one another, much is missing. Jim Lovell reminds us that for all the technological brilliance of the space race, there are eternal virtues that matter even more. An article in the USA Today reports that upon Apollo 13's return home, Jim Lovell was asked if he wanted to aim for the moon again. Lovell relates that, quote, I was about ready to say, well, I, and then I look at the back of the audience and there was a hand that went up, giving a big thumbs down. It was his wife, Marilyn. And so I said, well, I think we better let some other people try it, end quote. And ladies and gentlemen, as I speak to you now, the Lovells have just marked their 70th wedding anniversary. But of course, the same cannot be said for many. God said in Eden that it is not good for man to be alone but we face today an epidemic of loneliness. We live in an age of stunning technological transformation that has seemingly increased connectedness, but also helped decrease community. We can cross the entire earth in less than a day and our emails arrive instantaneously, but we have not found the fellowship that we need and we have lost the biblical teachings about what lends life meaning. To paraphrase Senator Bansas, the technology that has liberated us from so much inconvenience and drudgery has also unmoored us from the things that anchor our identities, outpacing our ability to figure out what community, friendships, and relationships should look like in the modern world. In 1972, Apollo 17 became the last manned mission to the moon to date. One of its astronauts, Harrison Schmidt, later ran for the Senate, and his opponent, running against a national hero, created a brilliant negative ad, which said, Harrison Schmidt, What on earth has he done for you lately? As I speak, private space travel is on the verge of becoming a reality, but we are becoming ever more aware that our own lives need work here on earth. Perhaps a return to the Bible is the solution. Perhaps it is this ancient text filled with wisdom that can teach each of us about ourselves and thereby allow us, like Adam and Eve in Eden, to find each other. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning with you tomorrow, signing off.